You're listening to a podcast by Hip Fee Hype, where we discuss new ideas around housing, sustainability, and climate action to explore ways to support the sustainable growth of our cities and regions. I'm Laura Phillips, and I'm the head of urban advocacy at Hip Fee Hype. Hip Fee Hype is an entrepreneurial group of businesses that are working to resolve more sustainable, more socially responsible, and more intuitive solutions to our cities. What do you see when you think of typical housing in Australia? Do you think of a terrace house within walking distance to the city? Do you see a detached house with a garden in a city suburb? Or maybe you think of a mid-rise old apartment building that dots the inner city suburbs of Melbourne and Sydney. What kind of housing did you grow up in? Is that different to the type of housing you would want to live in now or could afford to live in now? Australian cities have some of the lowest rates of density in the world. The idea of the great Australian dream of a suburban block is still leading people to look towards the fringes of our urban centres in search for affordability. Moderate increases in density across our suburbs can provide for more housing close by to existing community amenity, public transport and green spaces. Yet building out the missing middle is marred by contentious planning proposals and local politics. Today I sit down with Liam Wallace, Director of Hip Hype, and Bridget Salmon, who is a Senior Policy Advisor, to discuss the case of densifying Australian cities. Liam Wallace is now joined by Bridget Salmon to discuss how to responsibly densify our suburbs towards building more sustainable cities. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. So why do you think Australian cities need to densify? I guess, firstly, I think it's really important to note that some parts of Australian cities are actually extraordinarily dense. I think um, part of the issue is that we have such a contrast between our CBDs and our um, middle ring suburbs and then a a contrast even further to our greenfield areas on the fringe of our cities. So I think uh, when we talk about the need to densify, we really need to think about um, the question at hand in terms of where and what that actually means. So are we talking about the housing style or are we talking about people per hectare? And for me, I think when we think about increasing density in an Australian context, it's about equity and making sure that our cities are places where, like all of our policies say across every single Australian city, it is an environment where you can sort of live, work, play, um, which is a bit of a cliche, but also... um, you know, invest in housing which already has access to the infrastructure that that you really need to live in a sustainable city? Yeah, it's a really tough first up question, Laura. Thanks for that. Um, density, I guess, you know, we've we've all experienced the positives of late of of sort of what density means more broadly to this to a city. Um, you know, more activity, more vibrancy, um, more more jobs. A more vibrant economy essentially um, downsides to that congestion uh, and and really more more time kind of commuting and moving around the city and and I think you know if if more broadly we're planning to increase the density of our cities I think uh, which which seems to be the case and despite covid sort of throwing a little bit of a spanner in the works in terms of uh, you know net migration in the short term I think that intersection between where we live and where we work is is a really critical component to to how we think about the shape of the city and and probably more importantly like that question of where we work um, is is an interesting one to spend a little bit of time on because I think you know sitting 
in an area like Brunswick, our frame of reference is kind of the CBD. We can see the big buildings in the city. And, and so often people sort of like just assume that that's where the majority of jobs are in the economy. Melbourne's potentially shaped quite, quite a lot differently to that in terms of where people live and where we work and where the majority of people live and where the majority of people work and what kind of jobs exist in an economy. So, you know, if you're building houses and you're a tradie, you know, your tools are in the back of the ute and you're driving around the ring roads and, and you're building homes out on the fringe. You know, if you're in manufacturing, well, hopefully post-COVID we see more and more kind of local manufacturing return. So we've got some more jobs that, that start to come into those kind of, you know, those areas out east and out west, which have been the traditional manufacturing zones. So we're starting to kind of potentially reassess where we live and where we work. But I think, you know, more broadly this this question of sustainability, you know, what resources are we using, um, where are we using them, how, how are we using less ultimately um, to, to be as efficient economically as we can and create the best lifestyles for people. And I think there's, there's, there's a really important link there between densification and sustainability. So, um, you know, smaller footprints and more, more densely connected living and working kind of environments uh, tied to ideas more broadly of sustainability so using resources much more efficiently by virtue of living more densely so there's there's those pretty important arguments to insert into into the discussion as well so super complicated yeah and i and i think you've touched on a really important point and i sort of jumped to this immediately as well but often when we think about density we immediately jump to housing but the sort of the stickiness of employment land and how challenging it is to sort of move that around. You know, ultimately you can put housing in in multiple different locations, but employment land is a little bit more specific as to where it can work, particularly if you're talking about lands that have, you know, adverse amenity impacts on on neighbours and things like that. But I think from a policy perspective, perhaps a gap is thinking about, well, where do people work? Where would they like to work? How do they get to work? And let's think about housing in the context of that, from that perspective, rather than just housing in the context of increasing density as it's sort of how many people we can fit on a single lot. Well, I suppose to that point and how there is kind of, you know, maybe a, a, an emerging decentralisation of, of city and employment opportunities, and maybe that's going to become more obvious now that people are more accustomed to working from home. And it's going to your point, Bridget, about how there's, you know, there is a, a broad spectrum of, of density across the city. What do you see is, is meant by the term of the missing middle? Um, and what are the benefits of supporting density in, in those suburbs? I think um, missing middle is a uniquely Australian problem, um, particularly because our cities are so big. Um, so when we look at uh, cities in Europe, they don't have a missing middle problem or they're unlikely to because their cities are just not as geographically expansive as ours. But it's really thinking about the city um, in that sort of concentric zone where you have the CBD and then you have the sort of suburbs that are about a two kilometre to 10 kilometre radius from the CBD. And then you have um, suburbia beyond that, if you will. Um, Perhaps 10 kilometres is also, um, you could be more generous than that as well. But essentially you see it as this inner ring that exists of already well-serviced and accessible land that has an opportunity to increase the density where you can already provide those services to people you can provide services to people so in a very Melbourne context 
you're thinking about your places like Brunswick, your Glenroys, your Coburgs or your Prans and South Yarras um, and thinking about the ways in which we can increase the density of development that it already exists but do it well. <laughs> um, I think it's really important to emphasise that density doesn't automatically equate to sustainability and I think in the past that has been assumed um, within a planning policy framework just by the very virtue of increasing the density of housing within a local area you're increasing its sort of resiliency or sustainability and I think it's really important to think about the aspects of that of the type of city that we want to live in and the type of housing that we want to live in. And I suppose, Liam, how, how would you respond to that question of that missing middle and then, I suppose, the challenges of the densification there? Uh, look, miss, missing middle for us is pretty specific, particularly around this area. So, you know, the, 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 the missing middle in terms of housings, housing that's available to a particular demographic who, you know, have jobs that are relatively centralised, that are, that are, you know, professional jobs if you like and 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 access to um housing land is too expensive uh and an apartment the apartment market isn't necessarily successfully delivering um larger scale uh larger scale apartments that might be suitable f you know for raising a family so you've got sort of this missing middle if you like of of people who's who who, who are working in more centralized locations um, and who, who are priced out of land and the apartment market's not necessarily delivering what they need. That, to me, I guess, is, is, um, is sort of our broader definition of the missing middle as it relates to sort of our focus as a business. And I suppose to your point about how the, there's, you know, density doesn't necessarily equate to sustainability, you know, what, what do you see as the, as the meaning of the word, of the term, you know, responsible density and how to, I suppose, build in that sustainable aspect into density? I might use an example of what I think is irresponsible density. <laughs> so if we think about the suburbs or new suburbs on the fringe of our cities, they are actually quite dense when you think about the built form. So as an example, you know, if you're driving around new areas on the western fringe of Melbourne, most of those houses you know, um, sometimes there's no separation between those houses. They might be blocks of sort of 350 square metres, which sounds quite large um, when, you, when you're comparing that to, say, a 100-square-metre apartment or townhouse, but really that block is nearly entirely built out. And I guess the reason behind that increase in built form density has been because they're obviously trying to fit more people into a smaller space. It's a little bit contradictory in the sense that, you know, the, the desire for people to live in a location like that, the benefits associated with that are being taken away from the built form, all in the name of sustainability, if you will, and increasing, obviously increasing the amount of population that you can accommodate in a certain area. But I think when you look at density in that sense, you could actually build a much greater um, and more amenable living space with a four-storey six-pack flat with actually more access to light, you know, perhaps better access to green space around that lot than you would in that sort of traditional greenfield area of redevelopment that we're seeing now. And so I think when we think about responsible density, we need to think about the quality of built form. We need to think about not just 
how much we're building but what we're taking away with what we're building. So one of the issues with the missing middle, um, particularly I guess from a policy sense, is that if we were just to um, sort of completely alter the built form fabric of our inner city suburbs, we might actually lose a lot of um, tree canopy coverage. So if we start with these sort of environmental elements of what do we want to achieve? And if that's an increase in density, that's great. But what do we need for our cities to be able to adapt and mitigate certain things that are coming with in relation to climate change? And I think we can sort of pair those two together to make sure that just because you have an increase in density doesn't mean you're sort of decimating the environment around you, which I think what we've seen recently with poor quality built form is that we can get density, but it's not actually done in a way that's respectful to the environment and will be built to respond to our changing climate. And Liam, I know you've spoken a lot in the past about you know value creation as opposed to value extraction. Mm. What, what do you see as, as the term responsible density and how that can be achieved? Responsible density. This is the challenge because so often we deal with specific site responses that you know we sort of we put our applications in and and our applications are assessed against sort of broader policy requirements and the challenge I guess is reconciling those two drivers um, more broadly because there's always uh, challenges in that interface between sort of a design response and a policy sort of requirement if you like and I think that's kind of policies a real challenge for policy too when we when we think about this idea of responsible densification because like you know take an example of you know greening of the suburbs you know so um so we use a trigger when when a when a site's subdivided and its density's increased there'll be a trigger requiring more more trees to be planted through the planning approvals and subdivision process there'll be there'll be those sort of triggers that, that are required to be met in order to achieve a planning permit and then obtain a subdivision permit. And I think um, sometimes when we're implementing those policies sort of with a broader sort of metropolitan scale objective in mind, but it's playing out site specifically, we sort of end up with unintended consequences. We end up kind of increasing the cost burden and complexity of approvals um, and sometimes limiting flexibility that may actually be required in order to provide arguably on balance a better site-specific response. But when sort of assessed against quagmire, to be really honest, of, of policy requirements, um, we, we end up sort of creating so much complexity and expense that you, your standard developer out there will sort of potentially lose patience with that process and seek seek a slightly easier path through and you know we're, we're then left with that question as to whether in fact that response for that particular site was in fact a better outcome and a more responsible example of densification than it would have otherwise been you know without the complexity of policy in attempting to create these frameworks to to achieve certain outcomes on a site by site response we might not in fact be achieving the best outcomes we can that's a really complicated question more broadly I think I I think you've touched on a really important point though 
which is the sort of piecemeal nature of medium density development that does occur in these inner ring suburbs. I think if we think about the context and the space within which we're developing, it's very different to um, the Greenfield example that I used before where you're sort of planning from scratch regardless of um, whether we think that's done well or not, in an existing community you've got sort of a raft of um, additional elements in play, not to mention the neighbours that already aren't, you know, the sort of the issue with private property rights that already exist in a really well-established suburb. But I think if we look at examples um, around the world and where they're thinking about sort of retrofitting these what we might call greyfield areas where there's sort of no heritage significance... The Australian policy or sort of regulatory setting is very reactive. We're never proactive. So we're not seeking, outwardly seeking change and putting mechanisms in place to actually allow that to happen. So if we think about the Davison Street Collective, if you think about that street as a whole and what Moreland as a council might say that they wish to achieve... All they can do is react to what a single person does in a single application. There's no sort of strategic application of looking at a street and thinking, okay, what might this street look like in 10 years' time if everyone were to replicate um, the Davison Street Collaborative? Or what policy mechanisms can we put in place to actually incentivise people to build the more sustainable medium-density housing rather than just reacting to the stock standard development that you might get in this sort of very discretionary space? Also, the I guess the issue with windfall gains on land and the, the fact that someone can sell a parcel of land with a speculative permit on it is, is sort of quite complicated and adds another layer of complexity to this story that that can often be the answer as to why we're not building or we're not seeing responsible density in this space as well. It's interesting that you brought that one up because it's sort of like we, we found ourselves sort of foul of a local, a local neighbourhood character or not mm. neighbourhood character but a local um, policy objective requiring sort of number one single level dwellings in the rear yard and number two more green space. Yeah. And yeah, obviously we we were proposing a double story in the rear yard, but that rear yard abutted two laneway interfaces and so didn't cause any immediate um, loss of kind of essential amenity, I would define it, which is access to sunlight and, and privacy. There was no loss of essential amenity to, to any of our neighbours by virtue of the laneway interface and by virtue of us being to the south side of our neighbour to the north. Again, by virtue of sort of the interface to the laneways, we're able to pull the, the bulk building form back off the mm-hmm. off the northern boundary, opening up landscape area. So, you know, in fact, the, the project satisfied the, the garden area requirement mm-hmm. for a site between 500 and 600 square metres, and yet the site was only 360 square metres. So we were, we were meeting this broader garden area requirement which presumably is about greening and permeability and all of these sort of objectives that you'd think yeah. the local character policy was seeking to achieve. Yeah. So urban heat, island effect, et cetera, et cetera. So right, we're ticking boxes and yet we find ourselves foul of kind of mm. a, a local character, a, a local policy that, that is somehow at odds with sort of state policy. Yeah. And I guess yeah. that's kind of, kind of highlighting some of these these challenges when we talk about responsible densification and and when we're seeking to achieve that and the barriers to actually achieving that. Yeah. Well, I suppose that we're using 
what do you see as, as the best way to, to achieve that, that level of proactive policy settings, you know, responsible density through policy perspective? So if we think about the way in which we currently plan for changes in density in our existing suburbs, there's sort of a a three-pronged process. So the first one is the sort of broader strategic planning process where you set up a policy aims document. You do some statistical research that will back up to show that this is the right location to support an increase in density. There is um, somewhat of an existing infrastructure capacity to accommodate you know a certain amount of increase in density and then from that strategic work you develop objectives of what you'd like to achieve and then you you think about the policy mechanisms um, that should occur on that you know parcel of private land in order to make sure that when they are redeveloped they're redeveloped in response to the policy aims and outcomes that you'd like to achieve now like that's in theory what should happen so that's this first process the second process is that administering of those policy outcomes which is the getting the planning permit process and then the third stage with that is obviously building permits and then the sort of complete change that you see this sort of distinction that exists in the Australian context of strategic planning and statutory planning, or if you're from Queensland, Adelaide, Western Australia, you might think of statutory planning as development facilitation. It doesn't really happen in other places. So if they seek to change an urban environment, they do the strategic work and they set out a framework for how, sort of like a master plan, if you will, um, for how that will be achieved. And they start putting in mechanisms um, to make that happen. So as an example, you might think about in the Netherlands, you know, they might start redoing the infrastructure of that street to promote people wanting to capture the value of that increase that will occur because of public investment. And so there's sort of these little proactive elements of government policy to promote the private sector to actually build what they'd like to build. And then in terms of the actual permit process stage, the nature in which a development is approved is all sort of done in what Australians would think of as the building permit stage. But it's because the expectation of what can go on a piece of land, the nature of how something can be built, that's already been determined. There's no argument about that. You've had the argument. You had it two years ago when the strategic policy was being developed. Now we're just waiting for the land itself to be developed and you don't have to rehash that argument. So I think getting rid of one of those processes would would really help, but not in the way that is reducing red tape, in a way that it's captured in a more efficient way. So we're still actually promoting those positive outcomes. Also, I think um, government should acquire a lot of land and do it themselves, but obviously it's there, yeah. <laughs> um, and Liam, would you have any, anything to add to that about how to kind of you know, best achieve that kind of responsible density, maybe from a design perspective? Oh, look, I'm, I'm far from an expert when it comes to kind of the distinctions between uh, strategic and stat planning. Um, I, I think my, my broader opinion on this one is I just... I just think it's a shame that we have so much design talent that exists, you know, that's come through our universities that that has potential to create, to imagine and and create um, a city that 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 a lot of us potentially can't even imagine. And before us, the the city has has been shaped by kind of the creative entrepreneurial potential of people, and we live in that city right now. Uh, and and I kind of, 
you know, have a sense more broadly, and a lot of us do, I think, that this current system isn't necessarily enabling the, the, the fullest of our creative entrepreneurial potential to reimagine and then create the future city in a way that, you know, potentially planners can't even necessarily imagine themselves. So how can we better facilitate frameworks that, that have a strong understanding of broader objectives but maintain flexibility for that creative process to evolve and for people to add value, you know? Um, and for people who are seeking to speculate and extract value from that system to, to somehow be kind of penalised for that, um, but for that system to better incentivise those who are seeking to genuinely kind of create value within that framework to be rewarded. And like philosophically, I guess, that's, that's a vision as to how we would implement that um that's why we've got Bridget here you know that's that's why Bridget goes off goes off and does some study and and you know works incredibly hard to 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 understand these systems and frameworks that that have evolved and exist in different contexts and and bring that back and and help help shape the future I think that's really important particularly in the sense that if we're looking um sorry I keep on returning to Melbourne but if we think about the fact that actually these areas have experienced a lot of growth in recent years and planning as a process while it slows things down and potentially adds a cost burden like the majority of planning permit applications get approved and if we you know if we go to London and we think about the fact that nine out of ten planning permit applications in the city like in greater London are approved but yet, few days ago, Boris Johnson came out and said we're going to completely reform the planning system as, as, as if it's the entire fault of the fact that they don't have enough housing supply, which is therefore causing broader macroeconomic issues with regards to construction jobs. I think we need to, particularly in this conversation about medium density housing, but also a sustainable, resilient, affordable city, we need to look at in most circumstances, what's motivating someone to develop their land? And that goes beyond planning. It's about the notion that we've started to see land purely as something that you can extract value from and not something that's so, you know, that is unlike any other commodity. So, you know, we can't just, it's not substitutable. We can't just go find more of it. And so perhaps in the broader sense and particularly thinking about things like taxation reform what is it that we can look at at that broader policy outside of planning perspective that can ensure that the people that want to do something really well have the levers there to to um, pull but the people that are purely only looking at land as something that they can just chuck you know three really crappy 10-year warranty dwellings on they're they're the ones that are pushed down and I think at the moment we've kind of perversely created this system where it's really easy for someone to build the three crappy dwellings and someone that wants to actually do something really well is facing a barrier every step of the way and I think that's that's really important in terms of what's motivating people to do what they'd like to do and maybe we need to think about policy from that perspective and not being so reactive just to the the crap that's being built but being proactive and thinking about what would the best outcome look like and the reality is there are people ready to do that for us so how can we give them the levers that they need um, to do that I mean you've you've summed up um, the last question 
quite well, but if you had anything else to add, what do you see as an ideal future for density and sustainable growth of Australia, I suppose in 20 years, but also beyond that, 50 years, buildings could last up to 100 years? I, I, I keep... I crap on a lot about like this this broader notion of like the Soho mm. kind of you, you know eighteenth um, nineteenth century um, multi-story factory yeah. complex yeah. that has a life beyond you know it, it's a it, it's original utilitarian mm. kind of mm-hmm. function. Mm-hmm. So you've got these big buildings, you've got immense kind of floor to ceiling heights, you've got like big windows you know, by virtue of kind of the, the efforts that were introduced into that manufacturing um, kind of process at the time to kind of create more, um, more workable environments for, 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 the, for the people undertaking the manufacturing work. So mm-hmm. you've just got these really flexible floor plates um, and relatively kind of big buildings, not massive buildings, but, you know, they're not, they're not small by any means and mm-hmm. they just create incredibly flexible um, uses over time and those buildings last for hundreds of years and there's some of the most valuable real estate in mm-hmm. a city like New York and you look mm-hmm. around different parts of the world I mean, in Melbourne we're unlucky to have buildings of that scale Sydney's got a few more yeah. uh, we just like our, our manufacturing industries weren't large enough and we sort of had land available on the outskirts um, uh, but but those I, I feel like are the, are the buildings we need to be kind of thinking about how how we can in better in, incentivize us to be building much much more flexible building typologies, and the more kind of policy layers we seem to insert into the process, you know the more specific applications have to respond very very specifically, and the more we sort of build these kind of very very specific building forms. And we're going to find it hard to reuse those buildings. Like we're going to end up knocking these buildings down in order to build new buildings as opposed to repurposing the buildings we build today. And I think that's a broader question as well. Like when we're thinking about these sorts of questions strategically, it's like how can we build buildings that are going to last for 100, 200 years and can be used in ways that we can't necessarily even think they're going to be used, you know, in 50 years and that's the kind of framework that I think would, yeah. would be particularly interesting. It sort of goes back to that question of who are we building for? So there's no point in having density if it's only for people that can afford to buy an apartment above, or, you know, a townhouse above a million dollars. So I, I think there are multiple layers. One is obviously the built form quality, which Liam, I, I can't fault that response. So there's nothing there's, that's perfect. Um, but also is, the, again, this motivation associated with why are we building what we're building. And if it's only to create a Soho loft, <laughs> then at, that no one except for someone who works in the financial sector or perhaps the real estate sector can <laughs> afford to purchase, yeah. then to me there's no point at all because that's not what a city is, is for. Yeah. And so I guess I'd love to see... I'd, I'd really love to see a sort of Australia-wide density discussion about from the perspective of what's driving demand and what's driving supply and that has the honest discussion that supply doesn't like particularly from an affordability perspective which I know isn't um, we haven't really touched a lot on in this discussion but that sort of um, I guess in my mind the fast that supply you know increasing supply will help with affordability but again it's the right type of supply 
it's the motivation associated with what we're building and it's ensuring that density is accessible to the greatest number of people possible. But also there is a means to ensure that if we're retrofitting our existing communities that have excellent amenities, that those amenities are also improved. So there does need to be an element of land value capture or creation um, and capturing that creation to ensure that the infrastructure that will now need to be used by you know, 200 people rather than 100 people can actually accommodate that because then otherwise the negative externalities of density will start to outweigh the positives, which is dangerous. Thank you so much. So to summarise, I suppose, our discussion today, we've we've spoken about the need for more proactive policy settings that can actually incentivise more environmentally sustainable, responsible density across Australian cities. Bridget has very kindly brought in a number of further reading examples. So two of the titles of the Flexible Cities, Sustainable Solutions for a Europe in Transition and Urban Challenges, Resilient Solutions and Design Thinking for the Future of Urban Regions. And I'll put the the details of those books in the description. Thank you for tuning in.